Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and you are listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and I'm thankful that you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening routine to join us here on CRL. Now for this weekly program, That's Truth, as usual, Pastor Murphy is sitting across the desk from me. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the program. You can participate in the program. It's not just a one-way communication on Tuesday nights. We are here to communicate with you in a two-way communication, allow you to ask questions that you may have, questions about life, questions about the Bible. What does the Bible say about a particular topic? What does, why does the Bible not say something about a particular topic? We are here to answer your questions, and Pastor will answer them from a biblical worldview using Scripture. Thankful that you have joined, but we don't want to just stop with you joining. We want to have you encourage others to tune into the program and to join us. So go ahead and send to some of your contact list, maybe just one person, maybe your whole contact list. Go ahead and encourage them to tune in to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and to listen to That's Truth live for the next 90 minutes here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, we're going to start out, pick up with where we had to leave off last week with questions that had come in. And the first question for tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. A caller or an individual from Nevis would like you to explain two passages. And the first passage is 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. And it says, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord... Let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. And then the second passage is Mark chapter 10, verses 10 to 12. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Pastor, what is your explanation or your description of those passages? Well, I think the passages are very, very clear. Uh, The one in uh, Corinthians chapter 7, clearly the Apostle Paul is saying that he has direct words from God in regard, Christ in in regards to this matter of marriage. And he's saying basically that um, a person is not supposed to put away the wife. And if they do put away the white, they must remain single or else be reconciled. I think that is pretty straightforward. The problem with that passage is that stopping there, 
Uh, and that's the danger people make all the time because if you read the other passage, Paul gives directives. Now, if he wants to leave, let him leave. So uh, as far as these two verses are concerned, um, it is reinforcing the biblical mandate that marriage is something that is supposed to be permanent. It's supposed to be between a man and his wife, and they're not supposed to separate. They're not supposed to, to divorce. I think that's a given. That's a biblical teaching. Same thing in regards to, to Mark, uh, that marriage certainly is, is supposed to be permanent. And if a woman uh, or a man puts away the wife or husband um, and goes ahead and marries somebody else, they commit adultery. I think that is pretty straightforward. But again, that is taking one passage of Scripture and ignoring the other section that has to talk, talk the matter except for uh, immorality. There are two biblical grounds for biblical divorce. One is immorality, and that's the word fornication. It's a common word that means more than just uh, fornication. It includes adultery. It includes such things as bestiality. It includes homosexuality. It's one of those broad Greek terms uh, that is used to encompass the whole concept of immorality. Uh, I want to remind people that marriage is a covenant. It's a bilateral co- covenant. It's not a unilateral co- covenant. It's between two people. It's a mutual agreement between two people who pledge their fidelity uh, until death do their part. It is restrictive, and uh, it is exclusive to two individuals only. That's why the Bible talks about the two become one. There's a oneness. A third party destroys that oneness. It destroys the covenant. It it breaks the the, the vows that were made between the two individuals that they be uh, faithful to each other until death do their part. And that's where uh, the Lord permits uh, divorce in case of adultery. Now, I keep saying, I've said this on the program before, it doesn't mean because uh, a married person commits adultery that there should be automatic uh, divorce. I do think there should be opportunity for repentance and restoration and forgiveness. Uh, but what happens very frequently that is a repeated cycle where a person keeps doing the same thing again and again and again and again and again. Uh, I, as a pastor, um, if I was advised in a situation like that, uh, I, I, I would uh, certainly advise separation. And if it continues and the person can't handle the situation, I, I would have no problem with the matter of divorce. Now, uh, why would you advise separation? Because the goal should always be reconciliation. The goal is always to save a marriage. Uh, I, I, I've never seen a marriage that I wouldn't like to save. Mm-hmm. But I'm also aware that we're living in a day where a woman puts her life in jeopardy, a man puts her life in jeopardy every day. We've got 20, 27 STDs out there. Some of them are deadly really deadly. Uh, I can't encourage a person to just ignore that and keep let the person keep repeating the same thing again and again. And, and the Bible, I think, listen, God is a just God, and uh, He's always concerned about the welfare of the innocent. The guilty uh, must always bear their uh, iniquity and bear their punishment. And God never treats the innocent like you treat the guilty. And that's where the person who goes through a divorce because they find that they can't no longer they can no longer coexist together because trust has been broken down. When trust is broken down, uh, relationships crumble. And uh, it's very difficult when a person has put trust in an individual and that person has been unfaithful. It's very hard to regain that trust. And many, many times the fault of men is that they just figure that they can just switch off and switch on. Well, you know, I admit I did it, so therefore let's get back together and everything is solved. <laughs> well, those who, who do counseling, those who have actually uh, done experimentation in psychology will tell you that it takes 
the same amount of time a person has been involved in an illicit relationship, suppose it's two years or three years, it takes that same amount of time to rebuild trust. Wow. So it's, it's not something you can just switch on and switch off. Men go into that kind of a concept, so they don't understand the, the trauma it is to a woman, how she feels devalued. Uh, ask any woman who's gone through that, and uh, she's always wondering, what does the other person got I don't have? And uh, she always feels as though she's not only been cheated on, she always feels that she's uh, lost her, her value in, her, in, her, in the eyes of her husband. Uh, so I think that's the biblical teaching. And also in uh, Corinthians, it talks about um, if the man departs or the partner departs, Paul said that person no longer bound. That's the same word that is used in chapter 7, that uh, a man is bound to his wife so long as she is alive. But Paul clearly uses the same term there, indicating that that person who is abandoned also has a right uh, to go through the process of divorce. And by the way, as I tell people, if you're if you're doubtful about that, uh, you just wait a while. Normally, the person who's abandoned will end up in, they left you in the first case because they've got another partner, most cases. But even if it weren't the case, it generally ends up where they get in some illicit affair, and that brings them back to adultery, so it gives you a biblical base again. But those are the two fundamental reasons why uh, people uh, are allowed. Uh, but generally speaking, God's overall will is that marriage is permanent. The Bible said God hates divorce, but uh, he understands as well we can't make the innocent suffer uh, for the guilty. And let me just say this. I, as a pastor, will never marry a person who is guilty that went through a divorce and is a guilty person. Uh, I would never marry a person like that. Somebody else can do it, but not me, because they're not entitled uh, to remarry. The innocent person is entitled, but not the person who's committed the offense. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question, whatever it may be, at 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Thank you for listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. He is the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Nathan, before we go any further, I want to read the following verses. The reason why I explained it. This is the danger of stopping at one or two verses and not getting it. Because uh, you read verse 10 and 11. Verse number number, uh, 14 says... He said for the, um, sorry, verse 15 said, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God have called us to peace. You see, uh, they only read the section where she must be reconciled or must be reconciled, but completely ignores what comes after. I, I said that to say this, you've got to always read the content. You just can't select a passage that favors your interpretation. You have to read the general context of the passage, which comes before and which comes after to get a broad understanding of what Paul is teaching. That's something that... From the very beginning of this program a couple of years ago, you seem to keep coming back to is the importance of context. And if you take things out of context, if you're not careful, you end up following a cult or starting new doctrines. (laughs) The next question that has come in, thank you to the individual from Nevis who sent in that question. We hope that it has answered your question. And if you want more details or more follow-up, Uh, Get in touch with us, and Pastor will explain any more questions you have in relation to that topic. Uh, The next question comes from St. Kitts. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Can you please give the answer to these questions? And there are four questions to follow. 
The first one is, where will the judgment seat be? Will it be in the New Jerusalem or up in heaven? Well, uh, if you read the the passage that Paul gives us in Corinthians chapter 13, and also there's a section in Romans, I think, Romans chapter 14, uh, it is clearly it takes place after the rapture. The church is raptured, and somewhere in between the rapture and the tribulation, while that is going on, there's a judgment seat of Christ. So um, that would be my interpretation of the particular timing of it, that it takes it between the rapture and the tribulation. It takes place in heaven. Um, now that would, of course, would decide on our rewards in, in respect to what we would be doing in the Millennial Kingdom. And don't forget, we're coming back with Him uh, when He comes back in, in clouds to judge at the end of the tribulation. We are coming back with Him. So that it means that we are already glorified somewhere in between the rapture and the end of the tribulation. So it takes place in between that period of time. So it's... The New Jerusalem and heaven, are those No, the New Jerusalem comes down in okay. chapter 20 after the millennial kingdom. Remember, mm -hmm. it's the rapture, the tribulation, and then you, you go through what is called the millennial kingdom, and then you got the final rebellion, the end of the millennial kingdom, and then you got the eternity where you've got the New Jerusalem coming down. So that has not, that has not taken place as yet. The rapture and the judgment seat of Christ occurs before the New Jerusalem comes down. All right. So the key to answering that question is the time timing of everything. Yeah, it has to be between the rapture and the tribulation because at the end of the tribulation we come back with him, uh, and uh, so that is where it, it takes place somewhere in between there. Next question: Where does the soul go when one dies? Well, it depends on whose soul you're talking about. Uh, it is very clear that the believer and the unbeliever we don't go the same place. Uh, if you look at the passage in Luke chapter 16, uh, it is very clear uh, that our Lord is teaching there. Some people say it's a parable. I don't dispute what they want to say it's a parable. Not, but a parable teaches the truth. And the truth is that there's a, there are two compartments in Sheol or Hades. One that is a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom, and one is a place of torment called Hades proper. And the, the believer goes to Abraham's bosom, that is where he's comforted. The unbeliever goes to Hades proper, where he's tormented. So it depends on where the, the, uh, who, who we're talking about. Now, the important thing to remember now is that after Christ died and he was resurrected, the book of uh, Ephesians tells us he led captivity captive. And it's believed that what happens that there's a transition between, there's no longer intermediate period for the believer. Christ took those that were in Abraham's bosom in Hades and took them to him in glory. And that is why the Bible says, absent for the body is present with the Lord. So there's no longer an inter intermediate uh, period or um, area where a believer is now confined. A believer now goes absent with the body, present with the Lord. You remember also in um, when our Lord was resurrected, and somebody uh, Mary tried holding on to his foot and said, "Don't don't touch me because I, before I'm, I'm resurrected." So he went to prepare. Uh, for the believer so that the believer can be taken directly to glory. Uh, so the believer today, if he dies, he goes directly to be with the Lord. Uh, an unbeliever who is um, doesn't know Christ as Savior, he goes to that place called Hades, a uh, place of torment. But the believer no longer has to go through that intermediate period uh, of uh, Abraham's bosom. Remember also on the on the cross where the thief Jesus said, "Today shall thou be me where paradise. in paradise." And when in chapter twelve of Corinthians, chapter twelve, uh, paradise is the third heaven. 
so clearly, the um, that that there's no longer an intermediate stage for the believer to direct going to be with the Lord after one dies. Pastor, a follow-up question in relation to the question about uh, div- divorce that we started with. Uh, individual from Antigua would like you to explain what is a common law wife and a common law husband. Well, a common law uh, wife and husband is two people who shack up in a house. Uh, there's no legal, um, no legal um, commitments in terms of uh, going to a, a, a procedure of law. Um, they, they don't follow. There's no um, the ceremony is not even done in a church. It's just that two people just decide to live in a house together, husband and wife, without any um, vows before God or any vows before the courts. That's what we mean by what people might call about a common law marriage. But it's not a the, 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 what the government has done, uh, and the reason why they've done it, uh, did it uh, basically uh, related to the concern about the children. Uh, because children who were bastards, who didn't have parents, they could be disinherited. They didn't have certain things that the normal children would have. And to do justice to those kids who were born outside the wed- wedding, I mean outside the, uh, the, uh, the marriage, um, they thought it was an injustice that these people, did, these individuals did not share, and so they, they did the law accordingly. But in the process, it it really encouraged people not to do go to a legal procedure. And uh, so people can, you know, shack up in a house, and and uh, it's recognized as a as a marriage. Uh, and even if you there's property, uh, the individuals can still share uh, who are not part of the a uh, marriage in, in the the spoils of the of the marriage. But that's what it is. It's not it's not a commitment to God. It's not a commitment made in the church. It's not a commitment that is made legally by magistrate or whatever. It's just two people living in a house for so long, maybe 10, 15 years, and the, the, the authorities recognize it as a, a, a marriage. Um, so that's that's what it is. I recently heard someone talking about marriage and the fact that marriage, the definition of marriage is evolving and saying that man created marriage and therefore man in this day and age has the ability to redefine marriage. What do you think about that? Well, you only got to read the Bible. People who hold that position are people who are not Christians, let's face it. These are people who are probably sociologists uh, uh, and uh, and so on, but they claim, for example, that uh, man even formed government. They claim that man, uh, all of these institutions, marriage, etc., is a social construct uh, depending on the, 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 the society created it. But that's not true because you go down to the, the scriptures uh, from the very beginning of Genesis, uh, you see that uh, Adam and Eve came together uh, before God, and God presented them together as husband and wife. Uh, so, man did not create man did not create marriage. Man did not create government. Uh, God created government, and and uh, God created marriage, and God created the home. Uh, and not only could I go a little bit step, step further and say that God created sex and God defined what sex is about and God def- defined gender, what gender is. You can't decide, and uh, uh, sociologists or, or psychologists can't define if a person is a, a male or female. God has defined that uh, by certain physical characteristics. So the confusion today is that we've gotten away from Scripture. The problem is when we got away from Scripture, all we left is man fallen man and uh, depending on who you're following and who is supposed to have uh, to, to set the rules and the guidelines uh, you're going to have all these little gods trying to set up their own system 
and you're going to end up in total confusion because what man has a right to tell me how I can live? He's just a man like myself. So you need an authority and a standard above man uh, that is, is binding and transcendent. And that's the confusion the West finds itself in today. It's gone away from Scripture, so it no longer has any base for any morality. All they're left with is men making decisions and uh, governments making decisions, and uh, it's going to end up in more confusion and more confusion, and the situation is going to get better, it's going to get worse. The Bible talks about that evil men and seducers wax worse and worse. The world is headed towards a catastrophe, uh, a, a cataclysm like we've never seen before. The biblical teaching is that man is not going to improve, that man is not going to evolve, man is going to devolve, and man is going to get worse and worse and worse. And as men get away from God, uh, human conduct and human behavior is going to degrade. Remember Paul says that God's um, wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The connection there, pointed this out in a sermon was I preached that you get unrighteousness when you have ungodliness. You can only have righteousness once it's godliness. And when men get away from God, unrighteousness will begin to rule. Uh, and that is where, if you want to rebuild a society of righteousness and justice, you have to start back rebuilding a society with God, because that's where righteousness flows from. And there's no, mis- there's no um, mistake that Paul put it in that sequence, godliness and unrighteousness. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, and we are here to answer your questions about life, about the Bible. Maybe you have a topic that you would like discussed, something that you feel it would be practical. Uh, We want this program to be as practical as possible, and we believe that one of the best ways to do that is to discuss what is heavy on your mind and what you are concerned about. Pastor, we have a question here. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add in relation to the soul? Where no, I think I think I've said I, th- we did a program on this before yeah. uh, on, on where where, the, where do people go when they die. So maybe uh, we could give that person a reference and you can see it in greater detail how we presented the uh, the material then. Yes, uh, if you were to go to Google and just type in "That's Truth" podcast, and then you look at the episode number 64. It's called Soul Sleep in the Afterlife. And there may be another one. If I come across it, I will pass that on to you as the night goes on. But episode 64 of That's Truth, we talked about soul sleep in the afterlife. The next question, can the rapture take place before the unreached hear the gospel? Part of the reason why people keep using that again, it goes back to the passage in Matthew chapter 24 that this gospel of the kingdom is a preaching the whole world and then come to the end. But we pointed out to you uh, on another program that this has to do with the gospel going forth and being preached in the tribulation period. Um, uh, if you put the condition that the world must be reached before Christ returns, you no longer have uh, imminent rapture. You have a precondition for the rapture to occur. And uh, even the saints in the New Testament, uh, many of them believe the Lord would have returned within their lifetime. So the, the rapture is eminent. It is eminent in the sense it can take place any time. It has always been the eminent hope of the church. But if you put a precondition there, you have removed that eminency, which you wouldn't have a biblical support. But the, the reference about the gospel being preached in all the end of the world, in, in Matthew chapter 24, it has to do with during the tribulation period, when there will be 144,000 select Jewish evangelists that will cover the entire world. The church would have been raptured by then, 
Romans chapter 11 says that God will graft Israel back into his plan, and Israel becomes the evangelistic tool uh, to carry the, go- the gospel of the kingdom to the end of the world. Pastor, I recently was having a discussion with someone about missions, and uh, there was a little bit of disagreement as to whether the church is doing its appropriate job, and I'm using the word church Mm -hmm. very broadly, whether the church was doing an appropriate job in missions. What do you think? Look, there's always more that the church uh, would like to do, but it it depends on resources. I think everybody knows that we need resources. Uh, To do missionary work, you you need to be able to send people uh, to accomplish missionary work. In Paul's day, Paul could have gone to another country and use his tent-making skills and make a living and uh, do missionary work. There's no foreign country in this day that you can go to as a missionary uh, without having some means of indicating that you can uh, be supported uh, outside um, that country. They don't normally want you to come to their country to take over the job that another local can think. So you need to be able to have funds to be able to send missionaries to do work. And that has been one of the great impediments uh, to to expanding the missions program. Um, Because we can't send uh, people out, we don't have the resources to do that adequately, uh, we do support missionaries all over the world, and we do try to give them a monthly uh, help in that regard. Uh, but I, I don't think anybody would, would uh, disclaim that there's so much more that needs to be done and, and, and should be done. Uh, but a lot of it depends on the giving of the people, the resources that we have. Uh, but I think as our, our small church that we have, I do think we do a great job uh, uh, in terms of supporting missionaries. And as the church grows, uh, the church budget grows and the, the missionary budget goes, grows, uh, we will try to support as many as we can. But I don't think we'll ever reach the stage where we'll be satisfied with the level that we're doing. Uh, but I can guarantee anybody that if we had increased resources, uh, we would make sure that we could support missionaries, more missionaries. Is it a sin for a church to not support missionaries? I want to put you in the hot seat. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a mandate. I think it's a mandate. Uh, I mean, if you look at what is Christ's command, what is his last command he gave to the church, it's going to all the world and preach the gospel. I cannot conceive of a church being called New Testament in the sense of the the biblical presentation, and have no missionaries whatsoever. I don't support any missionary work whatsoever. How can that be called a New Testament church? How can that be fulfilling the mandate that God has given to the church to send out missionaries? So I, I it's you know, to say it is sin. Uh, it's pretty strong words, but I don't know how else you would define it because disobedience is sin. And clearly we are, we are commanded <coughs> to send the gospel to the end of the world. So I would think any church that is not supporting missionaries, whether they're sending missionaries or helping support missionaries, what I would say to them is that they're not fulfilling the New Testament uh, mandate and they're going to be held accountable for that single act of disobedience. Uh, you know, it's like I remember reading a story sometimes ago, Nathan, of a, a guy who was <coughs> had a problem with his home, had plumbing to do. And he hired a, a guy to do the plumbing. And when he came back, the plumbing wasn't done. The guy had seen other things that needed to be done, but in the process, he forgot the plumbing. And the guy said, but my main reason for calling you is to do the plumbing. You could have done a thousand things, but the plumbing is not done. And of course, he didn't get paid. <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a similar thing. We, we can do a lot of good things, but the one thing that he has mandated us to do, if we fail in that, we are going to meet his uh, reprobation and we're going to come up against his uh, uh, not well not well done, but uh, our, his rebuke for not fulfilling that mandate. 
You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and the time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 7.58. Pastor, here's a question that I can't say I've ever been asked before. When eternity ends, will the world start over again? Well, uh, again, I think the person is probably not worded it as uh, how it should be worded because eternity can't end. Uh, so I'm not too sure what they mean by that. What it probably means is when this time of this dispensation, this age is over, uh, would we go into eternity? And that's exactly what the Bible is teaching. There are different ages uh, that the Bible talks about. Um, if you believe in dispensation, you, you've got the age of grace, you've got the age of the law, you've got the age of the tribulation, you've got the age of the millennial, and then you've got the, the eternal age that is yet to come. So when this whole system is complete, after the rapture, then the tribulation, then the millennial kingdom, the final rebellion, and then uh, Christ comes back and have the judgment seat of, of Christ, etc., etc., and uh, the um, the what great white throne judgment, then we move into eternity from there. And so the, the time would have disappeared because, uh, you know, our time is dependent a lot on the sun, there's no sun there. The Bible says in the new, in the new, uh, the new heaven and the new earth. So there's no, there are no dimension, no time dimensions. We move into eternity. So I think it's more appropriate to ask if, when this this time, the period of time that man has is over, do we move into eternity? And the answer to that question is yes. So has eternity started yet? Well, God lives in eternity. Okay. We live in time. Uh, but that the, the eternal uh, state has not begun as yet in terms of where man is headed. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Pastor Murphy, God says we must be obedient to him. Do you keep the Sabbath? If not, read 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. And I will pull these up as we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Uh, Also read Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 12 says, And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightst be profited by me, he shall be free. Verse 12, And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. And the last passage is John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, reads as follows. For ye, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Pastor, do you obey the Sabbath? I guess this is a Seventh Adventist asking this question. Look, um, let me put it this way. If you read, same you've read that, asked me to read those passages, I would suggest that you read Second Corinthians chapter 3, uh, where it talks about a new covenant. Uh, 
And in that new covenant, um, it compares the old covenant to the new covenant. It calls the new old covenant the letter. It calls the new covenant the spirit. It calls the old covenant, it said it killeth. Uh, it said the new covenant giveth life. It calls the old covenant the ministry, ministration of death. It calls the new covenant the ministration of the spirit. It calls the old covenant the ministration of condemnation. It calls the new covenant the ministration of righteousness. And then it says that the old covenant is done away in verse 11. It's abolished in verse 13, etc., uh, etc. Et I pointed out to say that we're now under a new covenant. We're no longer under the old covenant of law, which requires the mandate that we obey the Sabbath. Sorry. Pastor, we have a caller calling from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Oh, by the way, congratulations on your wedding. How was it? Huh? You're very good, very good. Praise God. You still basking in glory? Yeah, what do you mean? All right. <laughs> Tonight, I want to ask a question about the same wedding. Go ahead. About what? Uh, uh, about wedding. Uh-huh. Uh, like, as you know, it has the false prophet, like the Adventist and the Jehovah. Witness. False prophet. So, I was talking about if somebody gets married, in Geovia and Adventist and then if it's still stand like a, a good wedding or whatever. Yeah, listen, uh, it's very, very clear that a, a person who marries, whether they marry a, a atheist or an agnostic or marry a JW or Seventh-day Adventist or a Lutheran or, or whatever, once you have committed yourself before God in vows, you're married. Uh uh, I mean, that is very, very clear. Like, even in, we talked, we read in uh, Corinthians chapter 17, 7 this evening. If the person is married to an unsaved person, uh, Paul is saying you don't leave the person because the person is not a Christian. So, biblically, once two people are committed and made vows before God to be faithful to each other and uh, committed to each other, to live in oneness, uh, that's a vow that's made before God and it's a marriage. So, so even though like a, a false prophet pastor would, would marry you, that would come. Doesn't make any difference. A marriage it has nothing to do with a person's religious belief or a person's uh, doctrinal belief. It has to do with a commitment to a relationship that involves a covenant and vows before God. If that were, by the way, if that were, let's suppose that were not true. Uh, anybody could jump out of marriage if they wanted to. And the, the whole argument of Corinthians chapter 7 is that here's a Christian married to a pagan not even a believer. Uh, but Paul is saying the believer must not lead the pagan. And these are idol worshippers we're talking about, the people that, that worship uh, um, heathen altars. But as far as Paul is concerned, the marriage is still valid. And he's saying you don't lead the marriage because of that, because you've made the vows. Okay. okay? Uh, otherwise, Christianity becomes an escape for everybody who wants to get over a miserable marriage. And, and uh, that is never permitted. Uh. Okay. Okay. So stick with your marriage. <laughs> no, 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 I teasing you, man. I teasing you. Okay. God bless. Okay, thank you, Wish you many time. years. Many, many years. God bless. Thank, thank okay, you very bye. much for the call and have a blessed night. And thank you for encouraging others to listen to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, that's not a problem. You can send it to 268-782-1454.
Or if you are joining us on Facebook Live, you can comment your question under the video feed and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. No matter how you're joining us, whether it's on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, whether you're on Facebook Live, whether you're listening at www.radiolighthouse.org, or maybe you're listening to the podcast or the video feed weeks after it's been live, we are honored that you have taken time to listen to That's Truth and to learn what a true biblical view teaches on these different topics. Pastor, right before that call, you were talking about uh, whether you obey the Sabbath. Yeah, I, I, I pointed out that there's a clear distinction that between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant of Law, there was a particular day called the Sabbath that was mandated that it be observed, and you had to belong to Judaism, by the way. In other words, you had to become a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm not following Judaism. I'm a Gentile. I belong to the church. The second thing i like to point out is just that the Old Covenant had a day. The New Covenant has a day, which is the Lord's Day. Uh, The Old Covenant day celebrated two things. It celebrated the creation, and it celebrated the redemption of Israel from Egypt. The New Day, the Lord's Day, celebrates the new creation, which is a new believer in Christ, okay? And, of course, um, so that is why we we observe. But besides that, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, uh, Paul points out that this new... Sorry, go ahead. Pastor, we have another caller. We will. Caller from St. Kitts, sorry we lost you. Call us back. And we will put you on the air. Uh, yeah, I, I was saying that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, uh, Paul talks about the believer's right to exercise certain liberties. And the liberty that we have is in respect to what we eat, what we drink, respect to any holy day, respect to feast days or ordinances, and respect to the Sabbath. Paul says in that passage, let every man be fully persuaded in his mind. Uh, so, we have to decide, uh, use our conscience. If we feel that uh, Sunday is the particular day that we want to worship on, uh, we worship on that day. So the, the Sabbath is no longer binding as under the Old Testament law because the Old Testament law as a means of living has been abolished, put away. Read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 and chapter 3, verse 13. The other thing uh, that in Romans 14 Again, Paul talking about Christian liberty in respect to two things, meats and days. And in verse 16, he says that, uh, that let every man be fully persuaded. So there's liberty in regards to the matter of the, of the day we worship on. But we worship on the sun, Sabbath because, Sunday because we believe the Lord was resurrected on that day. Remember, the 13 post-resurrection appearances of Christ, every time he appears is on the first day of the week. That is very, very significant. The church was founded on the day of Pentecost, which was Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, when Paul called the believers to Miletus uh, and he preached to them, he called them on the first day of the week and he preached to them. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians and asked about collecting the offering, he says on the first day of the week when you come together, if we see the offering. So clearly from the very New Testament times, uh, the church was moving away from the Jewish Sabbath and going to the, the Lord's Day. And then in Revelation chapter 1, it talks about John being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. This is not the day of the Lord, by the way. Two different translations. This is what is called the Lordian Day 
it's the same word that is used on the Lord's Sabbath, the Lordian Sabbath. So it's talking about the Lord's Day. Yes. Pastor Caller on the line, th- thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good uh, evening, pastors. Good evening, sir. Um, um, I'm concerned about um, this um, word, um, Melchizedek. I've heard um, different, um, you know, explanation about it. What is your um, explanation as to who this person is? Well, Melchizedek is an Old Testament priest uh, that did not fall in line with the Aaronic priesthood. He preceded the Aaronic priesthood. And um, again, we don't have any genealogy of him, so we don't know what his pedigree was. And he becomes a type of Christ, uh, that his Christ is not of the same ironic order. If Christ, Christ could not be a priest in the Old Testament days because he's not of the tribe of Levi. And that is why Melchizedek is a, a pre-type of him. Uh, showing that uh, there will be a priest unto God that would not be from the Aaronic priesthood. Not only that, the fact that they don't know his genealogy, uh, same thing with Christ. Uh, he, he, he does have a genealogy, but of course he is also eternal. So he's actually a type of priest that, does, that, that is separate from the Aaronic priesthood. And we know that the Aaronic priesthood is the one that God has established to minister uh, to the temple. But he was a type that there is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is a, a priest that is not of the same order of Aaron. And so he becomes a type of Christ as a priest that is not in line with the Aaronic priesthood. That's the biblical type you find in the book of uh, uh, Hebrews. There's a full exposition on the book, in the book of Hebrews concerning Melchizedek, uh, that he is a type of Christ as a priest. He's also called the priest of Salem, which means the, the, the prince of peace. But also, uh, Melchizedek was um, pointed out that he was far greater as well than than, um, than even Abraham, because remember, Abraham paid tithes uh, to, to Melchizedek. So it is just one of those mystery characters in the Old Testament that are what you call uh, types of the Messiah who is to come, to show the order of his priesthood was not going to be ironic. It was going to be uh, a priest outside of the Aaronic line. Does well, that um, if Abraham paid tithe uh-huh. to the Most High God, uh-huh. and also uh, the demonic, when Jesus Christ was trying to get him out, he called Jesus, uh, he, he addressed Jesus as the son of the most high God. Uh-huh. Who is the most high God? Because as I read the scriptures, he said that Melchizedek, he has no beginning, and he has no, no ending, end. yeah. no father, no, no mother. mother. Right. That means he's still somewhere out there. Well, <laughs> he cannot be because God said he is a jealous God and uh-huh. there is no other God besides him. Yeah, that's one interpretation, but generally speaking, it's interpreted that he didn't have a genealogy. Just like the the Aaronic priesthood could 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 not be a priest unless he, they could trace his genealogy back to to Levi. So when it, the, the expression used that he had no uh, no no uh, pedigree, the indication is that Christ is of the same order, that Christ is eternal, that Christ is. In other words, uh, you're dealing with uh, a priest that uh, is not of any human dimension. 
uh, and is outside the pale of uh, the Aaronic priesthood. But that, that's the contrast between the two. That, uh, as a matter of fact, in, in the book of Hebrews, it argues that uh, if Christ was of the Aaronic priesthood, uh, if it was required for him to be, he would not be a priest. But because he's not of the Aaronic priesthood, he's a priest unto God. But that's a, what you call a, a type. But there are many, many types in the Bible. Like, uh, for example, Adam is a type of Christ. Uh, in the fact that Adam was the federal head, that all men were embodied in Adam. And when Adam sinned, all humanity fell with him. And then you read in the book of Hebrew, in uh, Romans chapter 5, that Christ is also um, the new head. That is why redemption is possible in Christ, because he is the representative new man. And anybody that put their faith and trust in him can also be redeemed. Well, oh, oh, well I, accept, I accept your explanation, but uh, let me tell you how I feel. Okay. Because, because the Bible says that this man, he has no beginning, no ending, and he is. Jesus Christ came as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, Melchizedek, uh-huh. Yeah. After the order of this person, yeah. which means if he is still out there, it has to be no one else but his father. Well, well, look, the, the, there's another interpretation of that, you know. There are people who believe that that's what you call a theophany. You know what a theophany is? A theophany is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. That when, when in other words, that Christ appeared to Abraham in the uh, form of Melchizedek, as a priest uh, named Melchizedek. Just like when he appeared to, uh, when Joshua was going to the promised land, he appeared as the captain of the Lord of hosts. So there are those that believe that, that, that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Uh, that is a possibility. It's a very real possibility because uh, clearly the angel of the Lord in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, was a, a Christ was a pre, uh, pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ as well because you'll find that that angel of the Lord is also called Jehovah in the same passage. And there are what you call theophanies when Christ appeared in the Old Testament in different forms. For example, another one is in the, uh, the case with Daniel where the three Hebrew boys that were thrown into the, the, uh, the, the fiery furnace, they looked at him and said, I see a fourth like unto the Son of, Son of God. Uh, clearly that's a, a theophany where Christ uh, was a pre, pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, appearance of Christ. There are others in, in, the, in the Bible as well where he appeared. Um, the, the angel that wrestled with, um, with uh, Jacob, uh, and he said he wrestled with the Lord, clearly. That was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. In other words, God taking on a human f- a form and, and dealing with man. But there are those in the Old Testament. So it's possible that you could interpret uh, Melchizedek as one of those uh, theophanies in the Old Testament. All right, thank you. Um, have a good night. Thank you so very much. God I really bless. appreciate that. God bless. Thank you very much for your call. Have a blessed night and continue to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth. Pastor, back to the topic of the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. I was also going to point out that uh, it's significant that the church was founded on the first day of the week, day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. 
uh, I mentioned that when Paul called the elders and uh, he was at Miletus and uh, etc., uh, at uh, Paul preach, uh, it was on the first day of the week. The offering was collected on the first day of the week. Revelations describe John being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I pointed out that's not the same expression as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, which you find often in the prophetic books, is the day of judgment. What John is talking about there is a completely different expression, and the word is the Lordian day, and the same word is used as the, the, the Lord's Supper. So it's referring to the, to the Lord's day. The other thing, Nathan, is that from the very uh, beginning, uh, going back to like 120, 150 AD, you find that wherever the church met, they met on the first day of the week. I can quote uh, church father after church father, showing that the church met on the first day of the week uh, within the first hundred years of Christianity and right through. So this is the day that the church has uh, established in sense uh, to recognize the resurrection of Christ and uh, they do believe they have biblical precedent for it because of the fact that uh, the church met on the first day of the week in, in the book of Acts the offering was supposed to be on the first day of the week etc etc all of these post-resurrection appearances of Christ have to be on the first day of the week there's something very very significant about that and just like the old, old covenant had a day that celebrated the uh, creation and celebrated redemption. Uh, the New Covenant has a day called the Day of the Lord, which is Sunday, which celebrates the new creation and celebrates the resurrection of Christ. And I have uh, every Christian right to use my Christian liberty uh, to exercise what day of the week. Uh, there's no command anywhere in the epistles that commands us to, to worship on, on, on Saturday. It's interesting, Nathan, that all the of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament, and the one that's not repeated is the matter of observing on the Sabbath. I think that is very, 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 very significant. If you are interested in further study or detail about the topic of the Sabbath, again, you can look up the That's Truth podcast. Just Google That's Truth podcast. Uh, you can click on a number of different providers. Maybe you like it in your podcast from Spotify or Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. doesn't matter where. We're on many of them. You can go ahead and look up That's Truth and look for episode number four. And it's entitled The Sabbath, and that would be a 60-minute episode talking specifically about the Sabbath. Let me inject two, two other things quickly here, Nathan. The other thing is that, you know, I don't think of worshiping God on on, on Sunday I worship God on Saturday. I think I worship God every single day. That's the only truth. I live yeah. not because I don't. I don't think that Sunday is some unusual day that I just focus on worshiping the Lord. Every single day of my life, I try to serve God and live for God. So the idea of one single day doesn't even pass my mind. To be very honest with you, uh, so I worship God every single day, and um, I think God is honored by that, rather than just thinking that it's one day that I focus on Him. Uh, the other thing, Nathan, is that. Um, the, the, the Sabbath is the word Sabbath means rest, and Paul said that the Sabbath was a shadow, a type. It was always pointed to Jesus Christ, who would be the final rest that we would have in Him. So it has fulfilled its purpose. The shadow uh, was there, and now the substance has come. Let us not be absorbed by the shadow. Let us focus on the substance, who is Christ. And let us focus on serving Him and living for Him, not just on a Sabbath or Sunday, but living for Him every day. As you reference these different types, types of Christ and. Uh, foreshadowing 
would you say that Christianity is kind of mystical in the sense that there's hidden messages? I would say that, uh, in my judgment, one of the greatest proof that the Bible is the Word of God is typology. I think if a person would spend some time studying the different types, uh, you can see that they're no mere coincidence. These are things that are, they're not accidental either. It seems that, that God has completely ingrained in the Old Testament uh, mystical uh, concept of who Christ would be and only after Christ has come and, and fulfilled all that the Bible has said of him then we can look back and see the analogy between the two and it, it, it's, it, it's, it's just completely mind-boggling and, and just really I can't say it, it's perfectly uplifting uh, to see when you look back in the Old Testament to see a type uh, fulfilling the New Testament to understand the brilliance of God and the mind of God that he could have actually pre-planned these things uh, it just makes you want to adore him more when you understand these types in the Old Testament Yeah, to see that he had a master plan throughout yeah. all eternity <laughs> we have lots of questions that are coming in and we appreciate that but let me encourage you if you don't hear your question asked right away or immediately the next question after you sent it in. It's because there's other questions in line before you, but we will get to your question in the order in which it came in. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from St. Kitts Nevis. They say, I do appreciate the program, That's Truth. Special thanks to Dr. Pastor Murphy for allowing God to use him tremendously. My question, concerning the church constitution, could you kindly explain what it is, who is responsible for putting it together, and why it is so important to the local church? Well, basically, a constitution is a document that is created by the church, especially the charter members of a church. And it really describes how the church is supposed to be organized, supposed to function, and how it's supposed to be governed. Uh, it sets forth certain broad principles, uh, that, and these principles are mutually agreed on by those who form the, the church. And it, it pretty much provides a structure how the church is going to run its affairs. Um, it's needed because it helps in the governance of the church. It helps to establish order, efficiency. It, it must have checks and balances where you can control the leaders and set qualifications for the leaders, etc., etc., uh, and matters of, of, of discipline. And also, it helps you to guide you in how you go about decision-making as a church. So it is, it's basically a document that, that shows you how the, how the church is governed and how it's organized and how uh, what are the different roles of individuals. As far as how it is formulated, usually uh, it is done by those who establish the church, the charter members of a church. And you, you might have a missionary come in and he might preach uh, for several months and then you get 10 or 15 or 20 people who get converted and they feel that the Lord is leading them to create a church. It is those charted members that come together and um, sign a document in respect to and, and, and make uh, commitments uh, to help establish a church and then you have to have some kind of a constitution. You have a church covenant and a constitution. Um, so it is it, it, the way that is done as well is that the, the, the charter members can set up a committee uh, to look into how what the constitution would be shaped and what would be formed, what, uh, how it would be formed, those uh, that committee members normally would seek advice from pastors uh, of similar churches. I mean, if you got Baptist, normally would have Baptist churches already in the island, and there's nothing wrong in in, in uh, seconding one of the or two of the pastors to ask them to assist in, in forming the constitution. Um, 
And if you come out of a denomination, like a Baptist denomination, the norm is a standard format or form that you can send you down that would have a, an established profile of what a constitution is like. Uh, and you can use that uh, uh, to, to do that. The other thing I would suggest that in most cases is to don't try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, you can get uh, uh, constitutions from other ch- churches and go through the consti- go through their constitution, and then you can adapt uh, that, change it to suit your own environment, your own situation. But generally speaking, I'll tell you what it what it contains. It normally contains the name of the church, the purpose of the church. Uh, if there's any affiliation uh, or any interchurch. Um, agreement with, with other churches. It also contains a doctrinal statement that states what you believe. It, there's also a church covenant. Uh, it concerns matter of the church membership, how you receive members, whether by letter of baptism or uh, re- restoration. Um, it, these matter of discipline of members. It concerns about the offices of the church. Uh, who are the officers, the trustees, who are the deacons, uh, has to do with the pastor, maybe you've got the secretary and the treasurer. What are the duties of the different officers? Meetings, how frequently do you meet? Uh, what's the order of the service, etc., etc.? It also contains matter about elections, how you, how you elect people to office, how long that they serve, uh, what departments are in the church. You have a Sunday school, you have a youth, etc. It normally would contain those kind of things. And are there any auxiliary organizations that you, you, the church is going to work with? Uh, committees, how you form a committee, uh, when a committee is formed, and uh, who forms it. Matters of discipline is also there. How you call a pastor, uh, how you dim- dismiss a pastor, how do you remunerate a pastor. Um, if you've got a school, what's the connection between the school and the church? Uh, missions, what's the, the, the role of the church in regard to missions? And then what are the rules and order for conducting a business meeting. Normally, it's normally Robert's Rules of Order, and then amendments. How do you go about amending the Constitution, etc., etc.? So that, in essence, is a summary of what the Constitution is about, but it's, it's basically a document that helps you to know how to govern and uh, regulate and control and have order within the, uh, the church. What was the other question, Nathan? Uh, could you exp- please explain what it is, who is responsible for putting it together, and why it is important to the local church? What is important, you know, where have you got uh, individuals coming together from di- diverse backgrounds? You're going to have differences, and you need to have some way of having order in the meeting, how, how you c- control the meeting, how you regulate uh, the meeting. Uh, and the Bible says everything should be done decently in order. God is a God of order. So I think, and then uh, there must be rules and regulations. There must be checks and balances because of our ho- fallen nature, and, and that's why it's needed. Every church should have a constitution, and uh, I would suggest to any church that when you're calling a pastor, that um, you make sure that that pastor agrees with your constitution, because those are the guidelines that should govern the church. If you don't have a constitution, you can end up in a dictatorship where you have no control of the church, you have no recourse to deal with matters, and uh, I think that would be a a grievous mistake not to do that. How often should it be revised? Well, you know, I'm thinking about our own church. Uh, I've been there, what, uh, a good few years. 17 years? I think we've probably reviewed it about once already since I've been there. I've been through the Constitution uh, line by line, 
precept by precept, explaining to the people what the Constitution teaches. Um, I think a periodic review is, is in order, and I think an ad hoc committee can be formed to review the Constitution, or you can have the church board review the Constitution. And it's good sometimes that even in your Bible study, uh, that you, that's what I did. I, where I would use my the Bible study on Thursday, I went through the, the Constitution, explaining what the Constitution teaches. I don't think there's any set uh, time or order. I think it depends on the church. But I think it's, 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 it's a proper thing to do to periodically review uh, the Constitution. And I think you should do it to try to identify ambiguity. Sometimes the language uh, can lead to a lot of unnecessary debate and confusion because it's not stated as clearly as possible. And uh, people are always looking for loopholes. So sometimes I think by going through the Constitution where people seem to interpret it a different way, I think that you need to uh, identify those uh, any ambiguities. And then sometimes uh, certain things that need to be modified. Things have changed over a period of time. And uh, it might be it might be recommended that we alter how we do this or how we did that. I think it'd be right and proper. And then sometimes you need to harmonize it with the legal uh, legal uh, progress. Um, the, if a church is incorporated, for example, there may be some new guidelines that govern incorporation, and the church has to change uh, to fall in line with the incorporation status. So I think for uh, identifying ambiguity, uh, modifying where there need to be changes and then updating and harmonizing with the legal code, I think that makes it necessary to, to have these periodic reviews. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question and that series of questions. We hope that that was helpful. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening, Pastor. A believing brother goes out, gets married to an unsaved woman, and comes back to church with his wife. Should the church accept him back into fellowship two years later if he asks to be restored? Well, first of all, uh, if the guy's a member of the church, and I don't, I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind unless they're not aware of the biblical teaching, uh, a believer should not marry an unbeliever. Uh, Paul said we should marry in the Lord, but only in the Lord. So here you are, you've got a church member, and uh, he knows that the church does not sanction the marriage of a Christian to a non-Christian. Uh, he understands that, and uh, he goes directly against the Scripture. He willfully chooses to disobey God, and he goes and he marries. And then two years later, he comes back and um the question is, is it to be accepted at the church? My answer to that question, what really changes? What has changed? Did it still willful disobedience? My question would be, has he repented of his disobedience? My next question would be, has he asked the congregation for forgiveness, that he has willfully violated the covenant he's made between them, etc., etc.? And... Um, so I would think there has to be some kind of indication that there's some kind of repentance and some kind of an, uh, an official apology or confession that he did wrong and uh, before he's accepted back into the church. Uh, I think this is good also for the person he marries, that she, for the first time, or he, for the first time, learns that there's a distinction between a believer and a non-believer. And it might be the occasion for bringing in some kind of biblical counseling to actually move her in the direction of putting her faith and trust in God. So I think it has a, a, a wholesome purpose in that regard. However, let me say this. If uh, there is indication of repentance, uh, if the person said, you know what, I, I was wrong, I should not have done it, 
but that person is married. Let's suppose the person is still not saved. You still, as a church, now need to rally behind that person to make sure that that marriage is successful. So you must not hold it against the person once they've made the confession and uh, asked forgiveness, whatever it is. You want that marriage to succeed. But just accepting them back into the church without any indication that they made a mistake and they know that they were wrong and they are seeking forgiveness, I think it would uh, actually be wrong for the church to do that. I wouldn't recommend it. Did I understand you correctly to say that there's really never a time or a place that as a believer that we should be sabotaging a marriage, even if it's outside of uh, the faith? When a person is married, they're married, and our goal should be to help the marriage to be successful. We cannot tell a believer because he married an unserved person to put away, forget about it. Again, go back to Romans, uh, Corinthians chapter 7. You've got two people who are married. The Paul doesn't go into the details of when they were married, how they were married. The fact is you've got an unsafe person and a safe person that's married. And Paul is saying, let them not put it away. Right. So we must try to save marriage and salvage marriages. But um, when a believer willfully uh, does wrong and goes against biblical teaching, there needs to be repentance and there needs to be an official uh, appropriate apology made to the church and confession in that regard. Pastor, how about a Christian brother who divorces his wife, gets married to another, and is back in the church with his new wife? Should the church ever accept him back into fellowship if he asks? Uh, let me say a few things here. Number one, uh, the divorce his wife. Was this a valid divorce? Did they have biblical grounds for divorce? Uh, if they're not biblical grounds for divorce, uh, he has no right to remarriage. That's the first thing I would like to say. Okay, um, he, so he has gone out, and for whatever reason, uh, let's suppose he had um, didn't have biblical grounds. He abandoned his wife. He gone off and married somebody, and now he's coming back to the church uh, again. If he has didn't have biblical grounds to divorce and he goes ahead and marries somebody, comes back in church, there has to be a repentance. There has to be some indication that he acknowledges that what he did was wrong. Look, if we don't hold people to those kind of standards, we have no standards in the church. How can we be ever to, to, to discipline in the body? Uh, it doesn't matter who the person is. If they've done wrong, they need to make an appropriate repentance and ask the church forgiveness. That's a given. Uh, so that's my first thing I would say uh, in, in that regard. The other thing is that um, if the person is married and uh, they didn't have a biblical grounds for marriage, uh, I am not going to recommend that they get divorced, but I'm going to suggest to you that uh, that person has forfeited certain roles in the church, certain leadership roles in the church. Uh, he should not be treated as though he's not done wrong. Uh, so a person like that uh, should not be a deacon for sure, uh, should never be a deacon in the church again. So if he's coming back into the church, uh, he must come back with the understanding that there are certain roles he will not be able to perform within that church because of what he's done. Uh, he's disqualified himself in, in, in certain respects. Now, having said that, uh, if he acknowledges that he's done wrong, he's asked forgiveness, uh, uh, I think it depends on the church now. Um, um, they still have to understand that they still have to minister to him. 
even in his new marriage. You don't want the marriage now to be end up in another marriage. So you need to try to help him as much as possible in the marriage. So there will be some limitations placed on him, but it's contingent on his repentance and his seeking forgiveness from the church. Then the church can decide whether or not they want to receive him back. But to receive him back without any kind of repentance, any kind of seeking forgiveness or pardon, I think would be a gross mistake and would only embolden others to do that in, in the future. And remember that the church has the right to exercise discipline when they violate some biblical principle that is wrong. It doesn't mean, and we, by the way, we, we, we don't, uh, we, uh, discipline in the Bible is always remedial. It's always intended for some kind of restoration, not restoration to the office, but restoration to fellowship. That needs to be made very, very clear. So I think a lot depends uh, on the church. Now here's another thing that would need to be taken into consideration. Let's suppose that he divorced his wife, went outside, married somebody, brought back in. Is his wife, first wife, still there? The next question is, can she live with the pain of uh, of that uh, him being in the environment? Uh, how does that rattle her faith? How does that rattle her life? Uh, I think that is something that would need to be discussed with her. Uh, it might be advisable that the, this person find a different church. Uh, rather than the sister who's been faithful to God and now she finds herself in this difficult situation, it might be advisable that he move on to some other church. But you can't ignore the innocent party who has suffered long, or wrong and now has to endure it now by, by the person coming back and almost throwing it in her face on a daily basis. Uh, we must be concerned about her as well. And God is always concerned about the innocent so I think that's another factor that had to be borne in mind in regards to the church. Thank you to the individual who sent in those questions. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Montserrat. Good night, men of God. Is it right for a believer to get married to an unsaved person? And how would it affect the church if this takes place? Well, I think we just discussed that. It's never right for a believer to marry an unsaved person. Never right. Uh, Paul tells us in, in the script in his epistles that we must marry in the Lord. Uh, let her marry uh, in the Lord. So, and then the Bible says we must not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, so, the 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 idea that a believer would uh, go into a, a marriage with an unsaved person is not something that God countenances. God reprobates it. He forbids it. Uh, but I, I, as I've said before, once the marriage is made. It's a marriage. And and then Paul makes out that you don't abandon the person. Uh, and if you if you want to leave, you you, you you be reconciled. But um, so there's no biblical grounds for a believer marrying an unbeliever. And the Bible doesn't support it. Church should not encourage it. And it needs to be taught in the church that it is wrong for an unsa- a believer to marry an unsafe person. But if it does happen, how would it affect the church? Well, it affects the church in the sense that the individual certainly has to repent of that. And when I say repent of it, uh, he has to be willing to admit that he, what he did was wrong, was unscriptural. Uh, it depends if the church wants to put him on it and discipline. That's another matter for the church. But And then he, he should be apologetic to the church. Look, I, I, I knew this was biblically uh, wrong, or something I should not have done. I've done it. Uh, I, I'm grieved. I'm sorry that I did it. Uh, and uh, I, I want you to forgive me. And, to, you know, I think that that can be done. The Bible says we ought to forgive one another. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive our sins. So there's pardon and forgiveness. But at the same time, um, 
accepting people who have done willful willful wrong without some kind of repentance and some kind of an apology to church, I think is a, a mistake and should not be allowed in the church. <clears throat> if if the person does that, comes back in the church, make an appropriate apology and ask forgiveness, whatever it is, again, I repeat, it's the duty then of the members of the church, no matter what happens, to try to help to sustain that marriage and to make sure that marriage is, is a success and also of course now they've got an evangelistic work to do to try to uh, win that uh, person to the Lord so that you have now a Christian marriage so they have a ministry to fulfill in regard to this person as well what about if you marry someone who's attending the same church as you you both claim to be believers but after a period of time that you've been married that person falls away and it becomes very obvious that they really were just a Christian outwardly, there wasn't an in, uh, there wasn't a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, again, the, the application there goes back to Corinthians chapter seven. Uh, the, the person is unsaved. You don't jump ship or jettison ship because it's now becoming convenient. They might have deceived you, but the fact is, you're married. You've made vows before God. Uh, so you find yourself in a situation. Look, if if there is suffering in being a Christian at times, the times when you got to live go through suffering because you've been deceived, you've mis- been uh, mistreated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you don't violate your sacred vows before God uh, in a case like that. Now, if there's abuse and violence. Uh, that's another matter altogether. But if the person now says, look, I'm not a Christian, uh, that doesn't mean that you're not married to the person you sh- and you don't have duties to that person uh, since you've been made your marital vows. you still got those duties to perform in regard. And you think about it now that Paul points out in Corinthians chapter 7 that the saved person should now try to win the unsaved person. And the way that you win the unsaved person is not by lecturing them about uh, deception and lecturing them about uh, going to church. The way you win them is by a meek and quiet spirit living the Christian life before them and trying to influence them by your life as opposed to your lip. Uh, the talk and the mouth is not going to get you anywhere when it comes to the unsaved person. It is how you live before them and how you treat them that's going to be the, the bring about the change. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.43. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your questions Underneath the video feed, you can see what goes on behind the scenes in the studio during this program. Pastor, we have about 17 minutes left in the program tonight. Yeah, let me say something else, yeah. Nathan. We're talking about the uh, the, the uh, Constitution and the, the uh, matters related to that. Uh, let me just, uh, because the person asked a qu- part that we didn't ask, so are there any legal ramifications, etc. Yeah, there are very serious legal like ramifications in respect to the Constitution. Um, first of all, today, if you are going to form a church, you have to register with the government. Okay, whether it be a, a, a register as a non-profit organization, charitable organization, but it has to be registered. And you're going to have to have some kind of document to show that you are actually forming the church. And this is where you, you must have a constitution, you must have bylaws, you must have a, your doctrinal statement. You're not going to accept 
the fact that you just come and say, well, I'm a church. They want documents to prove that you went through the process of becoming a church. The other thing is that there are actually, uh, depending on the, the nature of the church, there's if you've got a charter document, which is uh, you become incorporated, where you're registered with the uh, companies under the Companies Act here in Antigua, that is a very serious document. And uh, of the, if it comes to the charter document, the constitution, or your bylaws, when it comes to dealing with legal issues, if you're incorporated, the incorporation trumps all of the others. That becomes the legal document that they're going to deal with you on that basis. But your 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 uh, charter normally would include your constitution, but it just it, it falls in line with the Companies Act here in Antigua. But there are legal uh, implications of, of uh, having a constitution, and the if you if you have a charter document which is your incorporation, that be used as the uh, by the government to dis to disputes about legal matters. If you don't have that, and you have the constitution, that would be the document to be used. To, to settle matters of legal of a legal nature, so it's important to to have those kind of, you know. By the way, some people say, well, you know, why would a church, why we need to to have legal documents um, filed with the government? Well, we must remember the Bible says we must obey the government as well. So, it's, you know, and and uh, and you can see sometimes why the government needs those kind of regulations because you can have any entity coming up saying it's a church. Yeah, it could be. A terrorist organization. It could be a means of ripping off people. Money laundering. Money laundering. The government has to have some means of regulating. So, it's not as though it's a, a you know that this is something where the government is, is is an imposition where the believer can't function in his role uh, or church. But it's a matter of of controlling and making sure that uh, things are done right and is not being abused and that uh, the church is not um, being misappropriated for illegal purposes or for scandals and uh, uh, etc. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Murphy, could you please repeat what you said earlier about remarriage? You said something about the person that is innocent is permitted to be remarried. Is that while the other person is still alive? My argument is, this is my view, okay? You may not agree with my view. My view is that as long as there's a biblical basis for divorce, divorce uh, biblically in all, in enables a person to also proceed with remarriage. So once a person is biblically divorced, they have a right to remarry. That is my view, and I think it is scriptural, uh, but that's my view. And another question. As a believer, if I died now... Do I immediately go into the presence of the Lord? Is a conscious state of mind in a conscious state of mind? The spirit goes to be with the Lord. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, um, if you read, um, I can't remember exactly where it is in in, in Corinthians. Um, I can't remember what chapter it is off the bat. But uh, the Apostle Paul said, "Absent for the body is present with the Lord." And then he talks about. Um, moving on and having a desire to be to, to remain but yet to to to, to go with the lord uh, but he said that the the present need is for him to remain but he really has this desire to go with the lord so when a person a believer dies he goes immediately into the presence of god again goes back go back to the thief on the cross today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And remember in Corinthians chapter 12, Second Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul is taken up to paradise, the third heaven, that's where God is. So that's going to the very immediate presence of God. So that's what, that, that's what I believe the Bible teaches. 
that uh, now before Christ had come and before Christ was resurrected, there was an intermediary stage where the believer went. It's called Abraham's bosom. But when it says he led captivity captive, he took all of those with him uh, as his resurrection to glory so that the believer no longer has to go through this intermediary stage. And that's the biblical teaching, and I believe it can be shown in Scripture. A WhatsApp question from St. Martin. Good night, Pastor. The Bible says when a person dies, they go to the grave, not straight to heaven. That is why there is funerals to bury the dead until Jesus comes. If the dead gone to heaven, who Jesus will be coming for? Well, that that clearly this person has to believe in soul sleep. I suspect it's a Seventh-day Adventist that and is the, saying that. They gave uh, the reference 1 Corinthians chapter 15, mm-hmm. 51 to 58, yeah. uh, and you will get a clear understanding of where our uncles and aunts are, those who are sleeping. Yeah. They are not in heaven, but in the grave waiting yeah. for the resurrection for the day of the Lord. That's because the person misunderstands what sleep refers to. The body sleeps. In the grave, the spirit goes to be with the Lord. Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the body sleeps. The human body disintegrates and goes into the, the, the ground. The spirit goes to be with the Lord. When Jesus comes back, read it very carefully in, uh, in, in Thessalonians. We come back with him. He brings us, uh, those that are with him. Those are the spirits of, of the believer. And then what happens, the body is resurrected, and the spirits and the body are placed back together. And so we go to be with the Lord. Those who are still alive, they, they're changed. So he's bringing the spirits of those who are with him. And the, the body is going to be resurrected, and the body and the spirit will be put back together because uh, humanity is... Uh, is um, a dichotomy is 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 a physical part and a spiritual part. The spiritual part goes to the Lord. The body sleeps in the grave. So when the Bible refers to sleep, uh, it's referring to the body sleeping, not the spirit sleeping. Let me show you an example of that. Okay, take um, the at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Two people appeared. Who appeared? Abraham and Elijah. Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Oh, yeah. Okay, they were conscious. They're talking about him. About what? About his death, his deceased. So clearly, uh, th- this is spirit there that is is, is there, uh, and and these men have been. Well, we know that Elijah never died. We know that Moses' body was hidden, but you you notice there that uh, clearly they're still conscious. So if you're saying that they're unconscious, how know that you've got them conscious dealing with the Lord? Right, and remember, our, our Lord said that He is the God of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not that He was; He is. In other words, His point in the argument is that they are not dead; they are alive. That's the whole gist of, the, of that particular incident there. So it's not the the spirit that sleeps; it's the body that sleeps. The spirit goes to be the Lord, and He brings back the spirit when He comes back with the, what's called the rapture. And the body and the spirit are once again united, so that the the human person uh, is is put back together, and uh, the, those who are alive there are completely uh, glorified and they're changed and transformed. So, I think your mistake is, sir, that you are probably grounded in the Old Testament that emphasizes the, the spirit. I mean, the, the matter of the body, but it, remember that the Bible is progressive in its revelation, and God unfolds to us progressively. Uh, this doctrine about what happens after death. And so it's the absent from the body is present with the Lord. 
And if you would like more details in an episode focused specifically on that topic, again, you can Google That's Truth Podcast. And once you choose whichever provider you want, whether it be Anchor or whether it be Google Podcast, you can look for episode number 64 entitled Soul Sleep and the Afterlife. And that is a 90-minute episode specifically on the topic of soul sleep and the afterlife. Pastor, we have seven minutes left in the program tonight. Uh, WhatsApp question from Anguilla. Good night, gentlemen. Pastor, should anyone be calling themselves a prophet or prophetess today? We've, uh, I think we did a program with that, and maybe you can give the person the, the reference to it. But let me just say this. The role of a prophet I, I depend on what the person means by prophet. Uh, in the Old Testament, a prophet is not one that just foretold the future. As a matter of fact, most of the prophetic books, uh, Ezekiel, all of them, uh, they, they more spoke to their times and their day than there is prophecy yet to come. So if you're talking about a prophet in the term that he is speaking to his generation using the Word of God, uh, like what a pastor does, I don't have a problem with it. But you talk a prophet who is now given new revelation. Uh, there's no biblical basis for that. If you read Ephesians, uh, we are told that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. In other words, when the church was established, it was established on the apostles' doctrine and the the prophetic doctrines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now the church is. No longer um, the church is formed. Not only that, we have a completed Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God has given to us all the revelation that we need. So if a person means that they are a prophet in the sense of the New Testament or the Old Testament, uh, there's no biblical basis for that. And I think that is one of the things that are causing tremendous confusion today. Uh, that people are, are claiming to be the prophets. As a matter of fact, they've got a prophet, a, a school of prophets, the place where you can uh, learn how to become a prophet. I, I forgot the cost of it. All of this is just mercenary, bogus. There's no basis of it whatsoever. The Word of God is complete. They're, we are told that four more prophets are coming. Three more prophets are coming, sorry. There are going to be two prophets during the tribulation period that will... Um, stand it for the Israel and will be killed and their bodies will be resurrected and the whole world will see those bodies resurrected by the way and then there is a false prophet who is going to come that will deceive the world by signs and wonders he will be the one that acts the role of John the Baptist in relation to Christ because he becomes the false prophet that supports the Antichrist. And the way he gets the world to follow the Antichrist is to perform miracles and signs and wonders and the world follows the Antichrist because of this, this majestic, these majestic things that this guy can do. Those are the only three prophets we are told are going to come. Two that will represent the Lord and one that will be an associate with the Antichrist. There's no other prophets we are told that will come. We've got two minutes left and three questions. Two questions. I think we've got time. We can do this. First John chapter 5, verse 16. Can you please explain it for me? It says, If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. For them that sin not unto death, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he, that he shall pray for it. 
Well, I don't know what that sin unto death is, but I do believe that a, a person can uh, commit a sin, and God says that's that's it. Uh, I think that when you hear of people who have these bizarre accidents, uh, maybe a believer in the church, and you said that he died so suddenly or something happened, you know, how come it missed everybody but it caught him? Uh, you don't know what is going on, but I do believe that a believer can reach the point where, and this is part of God's discipline, by the way, uh, that a, a person can be taken out prematurely. I believe if a, a person is a believer sinning, I believe that God will bring conviction in his life. I believe that if he doesn't respond to that conviction, God would bring some person in his life, some believer in his life, to try to warn him. I believe that if he doesn't heed, God will chasten that person. And uh, the different means of chasing, like he might lose his job, he might have problems with his marriage, he might have a sickness, and illness. But if after God has gone through all this process, the person still does not uh, respond, I believe that God says, checkmate, time out. And God removes that person. So there is a, a sin unto death, and it is part of the disciplinary process uh, of God's chastening of the believer. And we'll finish this episode with a WhatsApp question from St. Kitts. Good night, Brother Nathan and Pastor Murphy. This discussion that you are having about right now about Christian and unsaved marriage is rather interesting. I know of a situation where a brother went and got married to an unsaved woman. He came back into the church. He is very active. Don't think he didn't apologize. Don't think he did apologize to the church. The wife comes to church. The bread and wine passes over her week after week because she is not a believer. But her husband is active in the church. What do you say to that? I think that's a mistake. And I think that's where we create all the moral confusion in the church. Uh, that we know something is wrong and we, we don't uh, deal with it and get the person to make the appropriate apology. Uh, this person should not be functioning uh, in any capacity in the church until he's made things right in, in relation to this kind of matter. So I, th- I think it's a mistake that these things happen. A lot of interaction tonight on the program. Yeah, and I appreciate all those who've sent in these questions. I uh, hope we've been able to give you some biblical answers. And uh, if we haven't, maybe you could give us a chance to do a better job next time. Yeah, continue to listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Tune in again next week for That's Truth. If you have a question that comes to mind even before next week, send us a WhatsApp. Give us a call here at the station. We'll take a note of it, and we'll pass it on to Pastor Murphy, and he'll have a prepared answer. Or you can tune in next week and call and be put live on the air and ask your question. Stay tuned. Have a blessed night. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. 
Looking forward to having you join us next time.